Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. My friend Mel. Anita Louise. How is it going? Okay. Well... Anybody that keeps up with our podcast knows that this is coming out a little bit later, like hours later or maybe a day later. Not quite sure. <laughs> TBD. Yeah, it's been a little intense with death and other things. So apologies. That's my bad because I edit and we have to get together. So we unfortunately have a new widow born a few days ago. I, I asked you if, the, uh, if a bell rings when a widow is born. Or is it like a tuba? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a tuba that's out of tune. Yeah, okay. That sounds more. <laughs> so my friend Sandy is now a widow with us and condolences to her. She's awesome. Her husband died from COVID pneumonia. Sad, sad, sad. And they're amazing people. And I'm just thinking about the family and, you know, also like knowing what they're going to be going through. So... Love you guys. That happened. And then yesterday, which is why I couldn't edit. So all this death happened like the same day. This this part's not actually death happening right now. But my friend that you guys have heard me talk about, Courtney, the piano player that we were good friends, that he passed away from COVID in January. They had a, They found a bunch of music 
on his computer. And also he was in the process of making an album with friends. And so he had pieces of his music out there and all the ideas. And so since then, the friends have gotten together and they did a big tribute for him last night with his own music that he wrote. And so it was amazing. Gospel choir, because he he played and grew up in a Baptist church and, and was an amazing musician as well. So it was it was really fun and also really real that he wasn't there and my friend Jazzy is his widow and I sat by her and it was like all the feelings. It was so good and it was so hard at the same time. So that happened last night. So that's why I am slow in editing. Sorry everybody. <laughs> I love I love that. Um and it just illustrates again how we have to really embrace the stupid term bittersweet because it's like a happy, awesome thing that he created this music and it's stupid that he's not here to be the one to present it to the world or, you know, yeah. perform it. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, and it was just reinforcing of his genius. And like, we don't like to use that term flippantly, like this guy, actual genius. For example, they told a story last night, and I'm like, this is so Courtney. <laughs> like, Jazzy and I looked at each other. We're just like, yep. <laughs> he was playing a song at some service somewhere with our friend, Tim. And during the song, he texts Tim, because he can play in text. Like, this is, you know, multitasking at its <laughs> finest. Texted him the chords, and he's like, hey, I wrote a song <laughs> while another song was going. So then he sends him the text. And then by the end of the whatever they were playing, he's like, okay, I have a melody and I have lyrics. Like, I'm going to play it for you. So it was cool because <laughs> the story wow. for that was just like, yeah, this guy, I'm telling you, like the savant brain, real, 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 real. But it was amazing. So it was fun to hear stories of him and, and also to hear his stuff live on and mm-hmm. and the Baptist community, you know, is always really really amazing with music and so it was just was so great they flew in some people that were players on gospel albums like from kind of well-known people and so the band was great the choir was great tim my friend um that led it who was like a brother to courtney just was so amazing and if anybody's ever been to us uh i want to say what is it a service i guess like a church service or like a an event where there's that kind of format how the how Baptists do their services it, they're amazing it's like they know how to do it like they're so good with getting the audience participating they're good with all the feels like the way they plan the program they flow so well it's like exciting and then it's sad and like all the feelings and then their element of improv is so amazing so it's like they do the song and then like you never know what's gonna happen like Tim might just start singing another hymn and then the band will play and then everybody just knows the stuff in and out and then it's such an experience so i can sense your energy that it was a good night well i'm also just trying to explain it's like weird to explain it with words where it's something that's just so uh, in feeling based tangible for me yeah like i express my stuff through playing and i'm like i have to figure out how to put into words to anita (laughs) what what it was last night so i hope that made sense did it make sense yeah yeah, and I can just feel the energy that's coming from you, so that's fun. Two of my friends came with me last night, and they're dudes, and they were, like, cr- sobbing. 
and I'm like, are you okay? They're like, yeah, just like, it's intense. I have feelings. I'm like, okay, good. I have feelings. This is, it was accurate. So anyway, what's happening with you? Oof. Anita's ready um, to give up. This is a bad yeah, it's been a It's been a bad weekend, but my kids are going to school this week, and so hopefully I'll have some breathing room. I just want to say to all of our listeners who are in lockdown again, I I touch my fingers to my lips and I give you the, you know, um, Hunger Games salute. May the odds be ever in your favor. And also, if you're in lockdown and there's a hurricane. Uh, yeah. You guys, life is just really really weird and really hard right now i don't know but i guess we just keep putting you know one foot in front of the other and figuring it out as we go so that's what i'm doing and i'm feeling like i'm not up to the task that's been put before me and i'm trying to figure it out but here i am is part of it because school has started i think yes i think because it's like a change you know we have to get into a new routine and anytime there's a change it's it's it throws things off and it makes behavior crazier and um so yeah and i think my kids have been more tired because they've had to do things and so then then they're bigger jerks or (laughs) you know there's just been they've been fighting with each other a lot and I'm just tired, you know? It's like, I've been doing this for a long time, and it's hard. So, kind of a downer. To to all the moms who have had to start school, and there's still COVID stuff, and you're still a widow, because you'll always be widow, we send the vibes. Yes, we, we, we do the three finger, may the odds be ever in your favor. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's from a movie. What if you it's just, fine. like, use one finger and point it to the sky, <laughs> and you know which finger I'm talking about? I know which finger you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, I could do that, but I don't know if it will help. No, maybe it'll just help you feel better. Tell me what you think of this. Mm-hmm. I was playing for a service yesterday, and the message was... Instead of asking somebody, what are you feeling? It's, what are you thinking mm-hmm. while you're going through this stuff? Because, of course, there's an element of death. Um, and that was that was uh, part of the, the service yesterday. What do you think about that, Anita? Feeling and thinking. Hey, that's an interesting... That's an interesting question right now. I've actually been thinking about that in different terms, but in terms of like what's going on with COVID and the restrictions and the lockdowns and the whether we're feeling or whether we're thinking through what needs to happen and whether we're using logic or whether we're using emotion. So it's interesting that you said that because I've been thinking a lot about a lot about that. And I think there's room for both. I think that there has to be thought and, you know, we also have to have emotion and let our feelings feel so and i think about it a lot too because i've i'm life coach certification ing <laughs> i'm life coach certificationing yes and so that's it's all about thought work and dealing with feelings and so i'm like oh my gosh that's so true so it's hard i mean i think when we're dealing with such intense emotions of life events that are hard they're supposed to be hard sometimes when we are 
faced with a question like that, we think, well, oh, does that mean I should just change my thinking and I should be fine? It's like, no, maybe just be aware that there are thoughts that go with different emotions and feelings. And sometimes you just have to go through the process. And it's like, when you're in early grief, do you think it's healthy for you to just bypass all of the things? We talk about this all the time. It's like, well, maybe the answer is sitting with it and feeling of it, even though it super sucks. And, yeah. and, and I've found that sometimes, depending on kind of what frame of mind I'm in, when I hear a question like that, I'm like, oh, you're telling me I should think differently and I'm doing something wrong because I'm having a feeling. And really the reality is we're humans on the planet. We have physical bodies. We have brains. Like we're imperfect. We have thoughts. And we're going through hell. And sometimes we go through kind of calm times maybe. And uh, I know in life coaching there's a 50-50 kind of a saying like life can be 50% awesome and 50% the worst ever. And that's, I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure the line is blurred. For us, we feel like whatever. It's ninety percent sucky, and then and then ten percent drugs. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, so I would like to pose this just this thought to all of our friends. No matter if you're a griever or not, pay attention to what you're thinking and notice how you feel. And notice if there's a connection. It's hard. It's okay that it's hard too. And I just think that we, I think, I think that we shouldn't be trying to think ourselves out of emotion too. Like you were saying, thinking that our emotion is wrong or bad. And so we try and change our thoughts so we can get out of that emotion instead of just treating the emotion with less judgment. Yeah. And therein lies the rub because (laughs) it's uncomfortable to feel pain. So we want to not feel pain. Right. Absolutely. Hey, make sure we talk about this every week. Make sure you come and check out the Widow Wives Club if you have lost your partner and you can't find him or her. Just kidding. (laughs) They're missing in the ground or in an urn somewhere. Dead. Come and join the Widow Wives Club. It's a really supportive group. We have a good time there. Make sure you answer all of the questions. You can find links in our Instagram, on our website, Um, Just search in Facebook, Widow Wives Club, and you'll find us. Also, if you want to help keep the podcast going, we have three assignments for you. The first is easy peasy lemon squeezy. Rating and review helps other people find the podcast. Second is to join our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash WWDN. It's a monthly donation to help content creators like podcasters like mel and i and we have four tiers starting at five dollars a month so check it out for one of the tiers we give you a shout out so we're gonna do that now we're gonna start with our secret dead husband and to her we say hey widow (laughs) don't make it bad (laughs) take a sad life and make it better dude nice yeah you were even in the right key anita ish thank you no i can tell you yeah oh okay cool (laughs) you're like actually i'm a genius so you you. did it in the key of f okay next we have constance dahlbach david kelly don satterwhite ivan meisner cat chris dewaite amy amy sapp Ashley Hahn, Christina Shiflett, Danielle Catterberg, not a Debbie Downer, 
but yes, a Dennis Brazo. Jenny Taylor, our hearts are with you and all of the happenings in Afghanistan and the new widows. Blah. Crap. Jenny Wang. Kathy Murray. Kirsten Spooky Scary Stromberg. Leslie Webb. Missy Schubert. Skydiving tomorrow. (laughs) Sarah Morris. Sylvia Shore. I will never understand why people want to jump out of airplanes. Karen Cornejo. Anna Tracy. Christina Scambato. Christine Anderson. Mindy Holmgren. Don Barber. Diana Becker. Emily Thornton. Emily Toledo. Aaron Posick. Gabe Lozano. Ian Cini. Ileana Bella Ruiz. Jamie Aliota. Little Miss Chatterbox. Anita's mom. Jenny Barrow. Jocelyn Milo. The Fancy Lady Joy Kirsch. Katie Radcliffe. Kara Scara. Lori Farrington. Marie Hoffman. Marjorie Lewis. Mary McGowan. Peter Rukavina, the savior of the fonts. <laughs> and everything else. Sarah Kennedy. Shannon Helm. Sunshine Haven. Tammy Schwartz. Tara Wallace. Val Packer. South Park Wendy. <laughs> she knows. Okay. It goes all over the place. Batman! <laughs> Thank you to everybody who helps support us on the Patreon. We feel so amazed at the support you guys give us. So thank you, and if you'd like to join us, patreon.com slash WWDN. Thank you for helping us to help others. The third option is to buy us a taco at buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. Wow, that was coordinated. I know, we're doing (laughs) so good. Oh, Mel, shall we get to our episode? Yes, um, this is a cool episode on a topic that is very kind of fresh and new, even though it is from ancient of days. Ooh, interesting. Well, let's do it. I'm Anita. I'm Mel. We're two young widows. We're trying to solve the world's problems. No, we're not. We're trying to figure out (laughs) how to get through the day and widow we do now. This episode is sponsored by the Meisner Family Foundation in memory of Elizabeth Meisner. Mel is excited about our guest today because they share blue hair connection. We already discussed it. It's the most important part. Yes, and I know who my people are when I see them on Instagram within the first one second. And this is my people. So I'm extra stoked to talk to her today. So we have with us today, Kate Madden. Did I say it right, Kate? You said it perfectly. Okay, good. I was like, that one's not that hard, but I could mess it up. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Kate is super cute. And sometimes she has blue tips in her hair. And that's why Mel was like, we have to talk to her. Plus, she's got a super interesting gig that we're going to talk about. Yep. We've never talked about this before on our podcast. No. Oh, we've talked about this before, but we've never actually interviewed somebody that does this. Yes. We have somebody who's trying to become one of these. Yes. 
I feel like we shouldn't ever tell them what it is and we should just lead them on for like 40 minutes and then get to it. What do you think? Well, then we'll just ask her her favorite cheese and then we'll still not get to it. And then we'll be done. Oh, yeah. Kate, where are you recording from? I'm in Maine, Eastern Maine. Maine! Oh, beautiful. Aww. That sounds lovely right now. Uh, especially this time of year. It's just perfect. And the days are what everyone waits for at vacation land. And then they go away and it's super cold and you hate your life, right? It's really long and really dark. And I'll tell you, it is something. Oh, man. So let's just cut the mystery right open here. What do you do? I am a, drum roll please, death doula. Yes. Clap, clap, clap. Hey, yes. Is this a new thing? No, actually, this is an ancient offering, um, death care and death doula work. Um, but honestly, there has been um, a resurgence recently. And so probably okay. for like the last 160 years, I mean, we haven't had the support at end of life. So now you're hearing more about death doulas mainstream. Um, and I'll just point out too, I may intertwine words. I personally go by death doula, but there's a lot of people that do very similar things that I do and they would term themselves death worker, um, end of life guide. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different terms that could be interchangeable, but I go by death doula. That makes a lot of sense. It feels like that in the the past days, the days of yore, you know, death was not so clinical. It was more of a, you know, a family, a community type of a thing. The people within the community took care of the person and dressed the person and got them ready for burial. And um, then it became more, like I said, clinical, like, you know, the mortuary comes in and whisks the body away and does all of that kind of thing. And it does seem like there's a little bit of a return to alternate death practices, not just with, you know, death doula, but um, different ways of preparing bodies and different rituals and things like that that seem to be kind of coming back around, maybe. Completely. And prior to the Civil War, like you said, this is things that we were doing on a regular basis. Our families were caring, our communities were caring for our people that were dying. And after the Civil War and the amount of tragedy that took place at that point and the need for society to create institutions and systems after that change in our history really then led to the funeral industry rise and um, later on hospice care came into play. So those are two sort of modern day systems that we all know about funeral industry and hospice care. But really for so long, as long as humans have been dying, we've had people caring for them. And oftentimes, yes, it, it rests on the family or caregivers, but there was always people in each society and each community that were sought out for this role and really could be that sort of anchor of support during death and dying. So interesting. So what made you want to get into being a death doula? That's such a good question. I feel like nothing makes you want to get into it. You're pulled <laughs> into it. And basically, there's no getting out after that. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Are you sure it's not that you make a million dollars? That's not part of the package. 
She's like, I make negative a million dollars, guys. That's right. There's a lot of heart yeah. uh, service going out. And and so really, I hear that from a lot of death workers, though, too, that they aren't necessarily like seeking this out as a profession. It, it comes to them in one fashion or another. And a lot of us um, come to it through life experience. And um, that's how I came to it. My very dear friend um, seven years ago, almost seven years ago, died by suicide. And that death changed the entire trajectory of my existence. That was the first time that I was grappling with a traumatic death, uh, deep grief, and then subsequently uh, extreme death anxiety. Um, and through, and then two months later, I, my grandfather was dying and he was on his deathbed all of a sudden. And that through his death, I actually had the opportunity to doula him. He died in the hospital of pneumonia. Um, and I was able to be there and support my family and support him in the ways that I do now for other families. And at the time, I had no idea that this is what a death doula does. I was just naturally doing this, tending to my grandfather. And then uh, stepping back, you know, a couple of months later through all that exploration, like I said, grief and death anxiety, I was on this exploration to find out um, some ground in this groundless space because I was grappling with nothing under my feet. And I thought, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this. I am a type A control freak Virgo. And we like to have the ground underneath of us at all times. And so through that search, um, I found death doulas, end of life guides. And immediately when I heard that term, it was just like the neurons were snapping inside. I, I was just like, yes, you mean this is a way to help people and people are doing this. And with my grandfather's death, a gradual death rather than my friend's death that was a fast death. Through that gradual death, I was really able to observe myself and see that I was able to be in this space. Yes, I like control and yes, it felt groundless, but I was able to be there without, I was curious and willing to explore. And I found through the people I work with, you know, there's a lot of people that are just a closed book. The word death comes up and and it's done and it's sealed and we're not going there. And I'm the opposite. I have that inner child that was just like, okay, this is a big mystery and I want to know more. You're like us. (laughs) I have so many questions. (laughs) I don't even know where to start. (laughs) Okay. Start with the first one. Go. Oh, gosh. Okay. What did you do? This is just a basic question. What did you do before you became the goddess of death? Oh, I love that. (laughs) Goddess of death. I love that. And at one point as a hospice volunteer, they probably would have called me that. They were like, seriously, Kate, every time you're on the books to go see someone, this person dies before you get there. (gasps) Like, stop it. And so, yeah, I got a crazy nickname at that point. Um, but yeah, before getting into death care, I was a cosmetologist for 15 years and I, so just like the same thing, almost like it was a really easy transition, completely an intimate experience working with people one-on-one touching them all day long, um, and giving of ourselves, listening, active listening, um, 
but giving of time and holding space. And it was actually through that career that I met my very dear friend who died by suicide and really catapulted me into this place. So looking back, you know, I think for listeners, you could be that person that's like, I believe everything leads to the next thing. But looking back, I can't help but naturally see this sort of progression that brought me to this point. Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone But Then The Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Okay, so cosmetologist, and then you decided that you wanted to explore this work. And it sounds like it wasn't like a quick, all of a sudden, yes, now I'm a death doula. You volunteered for hospice. You did a lot of soul searching and trying to just think about death. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Lots of exploration first. So this has been a gradual process since 2014 to arrive at this point of now doing full-time death work. Um, But yeah, I really just started with my own self-exploration after the deaths of my two people. Um, That looked like evidential mediums. I would sit with mediums a lot of times and get into sort of that realm, looking at metaphysics. I mean, I really was just looking at all these big directions to try and get some answers. And through that discovery, I thought, okay, I really like learning about this. And I would like to put a little more education behind it and serve other people in this capacity. And that is when hospice volunteering came in. And hospice was wonderful because that was my first opportunity where I got a ton of education. Yeah, I had the life experience, I felt, but it was the um, concrete, this is what happens when the body dies. This, these are the signs um, leading up to death. You know, all of those really practical bits that I hadn't quite learned about yet. Um, Then through that experience and being a hospice volunteer and seeing all of the different avenues, seeing the holes also in the system of hospice, it really opened my eyes up to then saying, I would love to move into this as a full-time career and really serving people full-time. Will you tell us what some of those holes are in hospice? Well, I mean, there's so many and it really can depend on each person, but a few, you know, would be uh, time, the lack of time that hospice is able to be with the dying person. I mean, I think so many people get on service and they're like, good, you know, I will have this emotional and physical support. And that oftentimes in their minds means at the moment of death, which is like the 
big moment, for lack of a better way of putting it. It's it's the big moment for the caregivers and the families to have to to have the concerns of being there and being able to participate in it. And hospice, you think on the surface that they're going to be able to do that, and that is their role. But unfortunately, uh, so often, if not all the time, they're not there at the moment of death. It really their their roles are education and medical. And everything is timed, you know, they're in a system, a Medicaid system that's burdened. And so everything is charted and timed. Um, And that's something that the death workers are like, hey, we are here and we're able to spend unlimited amounts of time. If you need a vigil, I know, right? It's like, okay, that might be too much, unlimited amounts. But uh, I'm thinking- Seven and a half years, I know. will sit at my bedside. We want you there, months. But really it just allows for- you know, time of death. Someone could be laboring through the process of death for days, for hours. And that could be something that the family just does not want to be alone for that experience. Um, Okay. Yeah. Here's Here's a practical question, because I know that in hospice scenarios, you would call the hospice nurse when you think the end is near. How do you, how do they know when they need to summon you? Summon? The what is your her name for her? The death goddess. When do they need to summon the death goddess? The goddess of death. <laughs> wow. As soon as I love that the death goddess. As soon as they they know that this is a part of the journey they're going to take. It really looks different for each person. Some people may have gotten that diagnosis and that should be the time that they call us. But the way the world's working right now, so many families don't even know we exist. So it could be right as death is happening. It could be after death has happened. Um, But that's why it's so important right now to get the message out that, hey, we're here. We're available for a whole bunch of different things to help you and your family. How do people know that they need a death doula? And what kinds of conversations are you facing when people are like, you do what for your job? How do you educate them? I feel like everyone should have a death doula. And so let's just start that. Okay. Everyone you talk to just know that that goes hand in hand and maybe someday that would be a potential just like we're dying and we immediately go to get a funeral director or we immediately reach for a nurse or a doctor. It's like, I would like to think that 10 years, 20 years down the road, uh, maybe sooner, ideally, but you know, decades from now, it's just a natural response. I call my doula and they'll be there at the time of death or whenever I need them around that. I mean, we're kind of already looking at that in a mainstream way as far as birth doulas go in the States here. I think a lot of us, you know, if if birthing is a part of your journey and you're thinking about the education and who you might want there to support you, a lot of people might naturally think, oh, I'll I'll also bring on a birth doula to my team. I'm hoping at some point in the future that would look the same way for a death doula. So, hey, our family's in this position or or we're just ready to start planning and preparing people like myself. Like I love talking to people that aren't necessarily terminal, although we kind of believe that everyone is. I mean, we're all going to die. Um, but talking to people that are, you know, just living life and going about their business, but want to have plans in place because of whatever reason that they choose. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different opportunity for a lot of different people, but I think everyone should have a death doula on their team. 
So everyone needs a best friend, a therapist, and a death doula. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, something that we find when we've talked to our widows and widowers, and, you know, we're talking to you who helps people through the dying process, but most of our listeners, that's already happened to their person. You know, they have already died. And I bet a lot of them have regrets or think, oh, I wish I would have known about that, um, which is... It's kind of hard, but I mean, what do, what do you do? You did the best that you could. And of course, you know, for Mel and I, we had sudden deaths. So it wasn't, you know, a dying process. It was just like, boom, gone. Now, I can't remember what my question was going to be <laughs> because I just got myself twisted up. Okay, so talking to some of our widows and widowers who had a cancer death or had a longer, longer term death, some of the things that they ran into was um, the medical system not being honest about death and dying, always being um, rose-colored lenses, kind of like, we're going to try this, it might not work, but you never know, you know, they're brain dead, but we never know, we're still going to try this, and not really being honest about, you know what, they are going to die. Um, what do you have to say about that? We are in all of those spaces. Those are the spaces that we want to be a part of because you're right. This is happening all the time. And one of the biggest things we can do as death workers is advocate. One of the biggest things that we take pride in is autonomy and teaching people about their rights and their options. Um, so many people think think so many things. It's really about breaking down the last 200 years of faults or, or just oversaturated information, like embalming, for instance. People think that embalming is a necessary thing that has to happen. And it's, it doesn't. It's completely by choice. It's not a mandatory thing in any of the states. And it's important to learn those little details, um, things about your options when you're in the hospital or even at that moment of death too. Um, you know, let's say because so often deaths aren't happening in the home right now, although maybe at some point they will again, but a lot of deaths are taking place in hospitals and other institutions. And very few people know that they actually have the option to spend some time after death with their deceased person. And that doesn't have to be days on end, but it could be an hour, two hours, uh, however long, like slowing down the process of things. And the hospitals are systems and they're businesses and they're quick. And they're, you know, when someone does die in a hospital, they do have to get that person out of there in some way quickly. And so it would be nice if death workers were in every hospital and every room to just say, actually, it's legal for us to slow it down. And the ideal thing to do is to slow it down because there's a lot happening right now. And if we can just be kind of here, there'll be a lot of benefits. Um, so yeah. This is interesting that we're bringing this up because I was just talking to somebody the other day who oversees a bunch of people at his work and and he's had several people die of COVID recently and he's just like people are not quite sure how to handle death and so we got on the top topic of why and and he was like so many people now just go to the hospital and die or like with COVID, you know, a lot of people can't even go see their people dying. And and so it's like removing it further and further from the home, which is what it used to be. And I like that you brought up 
the fact that these are businesses. And same with like funeral homes too. It's like we don't know that we don't have to choose embalming or that we don't have to choose this or that we don't have to choose that and it's not required because as businesses grow they focus more and more and more on whatever they want to sell and so then we as a society are like oh well here's what's available you got it somebody dies you got to get them out quick because the hospital needs beds right or you have to hurry and bury them and when do you think this started happening like when I I don't know if there's even a right answer if you know the answer to this, but when do you think that our society kind of went from deaths at home, talking about death, slower process to what it is now? I'm thinking it's a progression, and you're right. I don't probably have the best exact answer, but what it is for me and how I kind of look at it is that progression. Like I mentioned earlier, after the Civil War, things really changed. And then in the 60s, hospice came about. And then about probably, I guess, late 70s, 80s, 80s sometime, um, the hospice model was absorbed by the medical model. And that is actually a quote that I'm reciting from my very dear friend, Barbara Carnes, who is Hospice RN, award-winning author, and anyone that's dealt with hospice knows her book, The Little Blue Book. And this is someone that has spent her entire life in the hospice system and serving people that way. And I just spoke to her on one of my um, lives, and she said that. She said, you know, hospice was um, designed to be what death workers are doing right now at the bedside, at the moment of death, doing legacy projects, pre-planning, really slowing things down and making it a sacred or intimate experience. And then about the 80s or whenever it was, late 70s, um, that model was absorbed by the medical system. And money, money, money is at the bottom of that. So I like, though, that it's 2021. We just spent the last year and a half or are continuing in such of a pandemic. And death is on the forefront. We have been confronted by large amounts of death at once. And we're all left standing saying, what now? What next? How can we reinvent this space a little bit, too? Because that doesn't feel right. That putting our person in the hospital and them being solo or with very few people around. No, no longer are we going to do that. And I think that didn't happen overnight either. I think it really has been that progression of seeing how the hospice system has broken down, seeing how the medical system is breaking down and just saying, you know, how can we do death better? Do you find that there's a, a large spectrum though of what people want in their end of life care. I'm I'm just thinking about, you know, you're talking about slowing it down and spending time with somebody. And, you know, f- me, for instance, when I was first taken to the hospital and got to go see Jason's body, I didn't, I didn't want to spend time there. It made me feel like I just was like, this is not him. It was kind of a, not a pretty scene, you know, and I, I didn't want to be there. And I kind of feel like there's probably a large spectrum of what people want. Like, for instance, there might be people who I want to be in the hospital and have that professional care and have those people there all of the time, not to burden their families and things like that. So I imagine that there's a huge spectrum of what people want and what will make them 
feel like their experience was the most positive. I put that in quotes because, I mean, you know. It's death. It's so true. You you hit it so beautifully. It's individual. And I also remind death workers right now of this too, death workers that are wanting to come up and do this as something full time or as a part of their lives. It's like there's room for all of us because the spectrum of death and dying is so vast and so individual that one method and one style may not resonate. And so there should be many different people doing many different things. And just simply at the end of the day, putting up the message of education, because you're right, there are going to be so many people that don't want to participate in different pieces or all of it. And that's okay. We want to just start with where people are, with their comfort level, give them the education and options, and let them make their decisions, but at least we'll be supported. When I was in high school, I went through CNA training, and you have to do a certain number of clinical hours, and I think I was probably 16 or 17, and my first clinical, I show up at this, it was a care center, and they're like, so-and-so died, you get to go and get her ready to be taken off by the funeral home, and I was just like, holy crap. (laughs) And it was like, it was kind of a weird, a really weird experience for me because that was my first, you know, like, hey, you want to be a CNA? Here's a dead person, you know. And they're like, you got to put her dentures in because otherwise her mouth will get, you know, formed with no, you know, and all of these things that I never would have thought about. And it was just, it was really weird for me. But I kind of wonder, you know, if I had been born in the 1800s, if it wouldn't have been that weird, because I would have been doing that when somebody in my family died already. Although, I don't know about the dentures bit, maybe. Wooden dentures, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I gotta tell you, I was a candy striper at one point, and I so hope to walk past the morgue all the time. So, <laughs> trust me, there's us weirdos still out here, okay? In 2021. So, you would have been like, Yay! <laughs> Yeah, you were like, I'm a death goddess in training. (laughs) I know, I want to take care of the dead people. Probably would have painted some nails and maybe done a little hair is what I see. see? Mm -hmm. You know, death, we talk about death as this like sacred and this really, um, I I don't know if I want to say peaceful because I, I, we talk to people where it's not a peaceful experience and it's gross and there's things that happen to our bodies that are not beautiful and I watched my mother-in-law die and I remember thinking to myself this was not peaceful this was kind of like horrific in a way and I think that there is sometimes a disconnect between what it should be and what it is and should be in quotation marks you know because again it's not it's not it like in the movies sometimes sometimes it is you know, from what I hear, but um, yeah, again, a spectrum. The majority are not. (sighs) Do you educate your families about that and say, you know, this might not be, you know, just slipping away peacefully. It's going to be loud. It's going to be kind of scary sounding and, you know, a lot of those things. I think transparency and honesty has to happen because it is 
I'm using the word messy, but it is an experience oftentimes where the body, the physical body is dying. And so organs are changing and everything's happening. And yes, it looks all sorts of different ways. And that is something that's so important. Um, movements the body will make or sounds like you mentioned, all of this has to be discussed up front. And I understand if there's a person that doesn't want to hear it. And so it's like, okay, take it with each family, how much you can share with education and information. But if the family and the circle is willing to hear this, absolutely, it has to be said because it, when we know and when we're prepared for the experience, we're, we are in the know and we're prepared. It doesn't mean it makes it better or easier. It just, we're equipped with information. Wow. <laughs> in your skill set, do you also have really good dark jokes? Haha. <laughs> oh my gosh. I am not, but I love dark humor. And so I'm not, I wish I could be the type of person that recites it. Like, let me, Anita and Mel, share a dark joke with you at the moment. <laughs> but that's not me. But I hear them and oh, do I giggle. I giggle at inappropriate times all the time. So I'm always having to check myself too, especially at the bedside, you know, because you're dealing with all sorts of different energy levels and dynamics. And uh, so you Usually it's a lot of grounding and getting into my body so I can keep my emotions to myself. <laughs> She's like giggling and they're like, why are you giggling while grandma is dying? I have to have my poker face. Yes. Yeah, that's true of all medical professionals. You have to practice that because people say and do really weird things and you're like, okay, that's interesting. I'll be right back. Uh, anyway. Also... Kate, were you so glad for your poker face skills when the masks were mandated or maybe they still are where you are so that you could keep your mouth protected and nobody could see you laughing? Yes. But that what a different experience that was, though, really. And yeah. Yeah, I bet. yeah. So I wonder if you have advice for people who are facing a terminal diagnosis, but they don't know how long it's going to be. I feel like that is such a difficult position to be in because how do you gauge your energy and how you, you know, pace yourself when you're not even sure how long it's going to take for that person to die? Do you have any advice for people in that scenario? Usually it's about getting with the caregiver or the dying, depending on how much participation the dying person is wanting and able to give. Because obviously when you find out you have a terminal illness, there is just a ton of stuff coming in all at once, emotions, physical stuff. So really we go in and we're, we're like, what's the first thing? What is that one burning thing? Sometimes families, it's pre-planning. Sometimes it's making sure that the hospital uh, knows what they want. Sometimes it's something to do with a funeral home. So it's really about like sitting down saying what is in your brain that's really kind of stirring at your emotions and what can we start to check off the checkbox and through some of those really practical things the the I don't want to say calm but just a different level of energy can come in for the the dying space especially when you're not having to think of 90 different answers for all of these tasks so we can take a lot of the pressure off of the family and the caregivers at that time have you had a lot of uh pushback from hospital workers 
It's been tricky. Um, yes, actually. And so really, it's like I just had to do this with my mom the other day because now my grandmother entered hospice and she was like, good, I'm going to tell them you're a deaf doula. We're going to get you on the thing and, you know, they can call you for everything. And I said, it's not going to be that simple. You're going to have to let them know that I'm a hospice volunteer, that I've done this, that I was her caregiver, you know, because really we go in and, and you start saying deaf doula. And even so many nurses or doctors, any hospital staff, aren't sure as to what that position is. They're like, okay, yes. good. And what does that mean? <laughs> and there is concerns that their toes will be stepped on, for lack of a better way of putting it. And death workers, death doulas are here to say we are non-medical. That is the one thing that we are that separates us from everything that every other practitioner does in the end of life space, we are non-medical. So there does need to be doctors and there do need to be nurses and there has to be social workers if that's a thing that people need at that point in their life. Um, but there's also this wonderful opportunity for a death worker that can hold the space that's not afraid to talk about death and can be there for a whole different amount of roles. And I have so many hospice nurses, ICU nurses, doctors reaching out to me right now saying, we want more support from you on education in this space because they really, in their schooling and their learning, probably got a very small portion of it and then scooted on to the next thing. I mean, their roles are to keep people alive and keep people full of life. And so, but they are curious now because our systems have been keeping people long alive, long past their time. And you touched on this, Anita, at the beginning. And it's like, I think now they're seeing that there is room for another way if that's what someone wants. And so it's like, what is this other way? And how do we get participation? You just need to tell them, I'm a Sherpa. I'm a death Sherpa. And then it will disarm I them. And they'll be like, oh, Cool. You're not going to step on my toes. You're a Sherpa. I love that. <laughs> okay. Speaking of stepping on toes, have you ever had to contradict what the medical community is saying to a patient? So let me give you a scenario. Like we were talking about before. It's like, we're going to try this. We're going to try this. We're going to try this. And never any mention of death. Have you ever had to be like, hey, guys you're dying. Like, it's time to start thinking about not doing all of those kinds of things, or just to prepare for this to actually come to an end. It's kind of tricky, because as death workers, we're not supposed to go in and be like, hey, you're dying. Okay, uh, heads up, <laughs> we're here, and you're dying. It's, it is very much a different sort of more gentle approach where we're in the space and, you know, there'll be families that are like, don't say the, the D word, don't say hospice, don't say any of these words. So this is a very common reaction. Um, so we just try and go in and really meet people where they are. And it's, I say that so often, but it's the truth because each person and their people are in different places. Some are very accepting and it's like, hey, come in, we'll talk about it. And others forget it. Do you see the signs, though? And like in your brain, you're like... I know this person is dying soon, but they are not, nobody has told them 
or I mean, I just think that so many of us don't even don't even know what death looks like. Yeah. So even if somebody is about to die, we don't know. We've heard that from so many of our interviews. Like, I didn't know they were dying. Yes, but so often when you ask the dying person, which is really what the death worker does, if the dying person is able to communicate and in that position, we're holding space for them to talk about death. So, so often they know they're dying. It's the people around them that really can't get on board with saying it or, or acknowledging it. And I get it. And so we do sort of go into these spaces and really have to feel it out. It might be everyone in that space, including the dying person doesn't know. And when we come in and our presence and we're tending and we're creating the space and maybe bringing in some candles or whatever the environment that we're creating, people are like, what are you doing? Who are you? And so naturally we're people that are, comfortable with talking about death. So we're not coming in, hey, you're dying and we're freaking out. We're just, yes, I'm here. I'm a death guide. I'm an end of life guide. Um, You know, I'll be over here tending to something if you have any questions and just being in the environment, especially for those people that are really hesitant. Do you usually, do your services usually get called upon near the end or at the beginning of like a terminal diagnosis or somewhere in between? What would you say about that? It's a range. For me personally, I actually have now structured it so that I'm talking to people way before terminal diagnosis, way before. I want to talk to people um, that are just living their lives. And oftentimes the people I'm trying to work with have a lot of death anxiety and death fears. That's a passion of mine is reframing that thought process. Um, So, but there's a death worker for every stage because death and dying and grief is such a vast space. Um, There's going to be death workers that are going to fulfill roles right at the moment of death. You call me, you pick up that phone, I'll come over, I'll assist you. There'll be other death workers like me that are um, maybe have you know, working with people that have experienced a death recently and might be experiencing death anxiety and those emotions that go with it. That's a passion of mine. There's people that are going to be there for after. So your person is deceased now and you have to handle all of the affairs after the effect. And you know, both how many decisions go into doing that or sorting mail or any of those little tedious tasks. A death worker can fulfill so many roles and we are really creative too. So someone like myself, I have a license and a history as a cosmetologist and cut hair. I may give my person on their deathbed as they're dying a final haircut. It really is going to be so individual to each death doula, death worker you talk to as to what sort of space they're holding and at what time they're called. What if you are on vacation and your person you're supposed to help is dying. What do you do? Is there like a network of death doulas? Like, how does that work? That's such a good question. Right now, for me personally, you know, you're going to come on vacation with me and I'm going to probably set my vacation to the side a little bit and check in. Um, But we're working on creating a lot of different collectives, regional collectives, local collectives. Like it is growing so rapidly right now that there used to be one death worker per community. And now we're seeing groups of death workers. So um, Mel, in a perfect world, yes, that will be exactly 
exactly how it happens. When someone's on vacation, you actually can be in that space and know that you could call in a, a colleague and they'd be cared for. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier. I was like, a death doula has a similar lifestyle to a birth doula, where births and deaths don't happen from nine to five. You know, they happen whenever they want to happen. And so you have to commit yourself to that lifestyle of never knowing when you'll be needed. You're like Batman. Ooh, you guys oh. are giving me all these cool titles. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kate, you just opened the door to some really amazing topics. And that is, and especially for our listeners who have already had the death, after death, and how we deal with the aftermath of our person dying. Any advice for people who have experienced the death of their loved one and have regrets about how it went down or don't feel comfortable or just feel a sense of like, that was terrible? And I hated every minute of it. I don't necessarily have a bit of advice, but I would say that we can get really creative with this experience. And I think creativity can go a long way. So um, through creativity, our grief can start to integrate into a different sort of world and space. It doesn't mean grief healing or anything of that nature, but it can just start to come in in a different way when we're supported at that point. Um, yeah. How long do you doula somebody after the death of their person? Um, for me personally, it, it oftentimes can extend. It can extend depending on the person. And there's some that you do really connect with and it might be a longer period of time after the fact. It could be another person where you didn't necessarily connect or that wasn't your role to be there. And so you might do a couple of calls or check-ins after the fact and um, then it gets passed on to a grief doula which is also another area that's really rising right now oh what in the world I've never heard of it till right this minute yeah where are they yes can we have some we can have some you can have <laughs> some everyone can have some <laughs> yes yay Wow, I have never heard yeah, of a grief I'll get doula. you guys some names because they're wonderful. And really, you know, we're death doulas. So we're in the death and dying space. And we're really great in that space. But then there's the whole other vast space of grief and after death. And there are a lot of death doulas that will also step into those roles, but there's many of us that don't. And so I think now we're seeing this grief doula or grief worker branch, because there are people that are saying, okay, we want to be specifically in that vast space. Yeah. Okay. Very important. Do grief doulas often use donuts in their grief oh, doulaing? Do they bring they you donuts? Should. I mean, or oh, bread, carbs, everything warm <laughs> and baked. <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's okay. the beauty of all of these roles, you know, really getting to know the people you're with so they can do those tender things. You know, I've heard the the meme or the quote that says, you know, you can call hospice or you can call the hospital when you're on your deathbed and ask them for a pint of ice cream and they'll tell you where the nearest store is. Your death worker will actually drive there at 3 a.m., get you the ice cream and come bring it to you. So it is just those details and that level of care. Yes. I love it. Fun fact, Kate, 
I'm a physical therapist, and my first job was in a rehab hospital, and I once gave one of my patients a haircut. It did not go well, but he really needed it because his hair was in his eyes and his family never came to visit him, so he looked like he had a terrible bowl cup. Did you bring him ice cream at 3 a.m.? Because you could have done that to make up for the bad haircut. You know what? He actually was not allowed to eat, so... That's hard. (gasps) Bummer. But he did get a haircut by somebody who is completely unqualified. That happens all the time, and they'd be like, okay, Kate, now you're in... Go ahead and can, I'm like, oh can my you fix word! This? Bring your cosmetology skills yes. here. That's right, Kate. Thank you so much for talking to us and just kind of expanding our horizons and our minds and exploding our brains sometimes. And I'm too. like stoked we got to talk to Batman, Death Goddess. Like, when does that get to happen? I know. I'm gonna add that to my profile. You should. <laughs> I hope so. We hope that everybody listening has learned something new from Kate about the whole idea of death workers and changing kind of our culture around death and dying and and what opportunities and options we have for that. And we also hope that people listening will be kind to themselves in the process that they went through, whether it was quick or whether it was slow, and just know that, you know, you cannot change what happened in the past and, and it sucks it's, sometimes. Yeah. But just be nice to yourselves. Now, Kate, how does one find you on the social medias or the interwebs? Ooh, thanks for asking. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm Kate, C-A-I-T dot death doula. Or at my website, www.katecaitmadden.com. That's so exotic. I know. We're going to link to that in our show notes for anybody that is interested. And is this, is Death Doulaing also available online? Or do you have to be in person? Yes, I actually offer virtual services. So um, that was one thing that the pandemic really pushed me towards was to being able to be bedside or serve people in a number of different ways virtually. So yeah, tech has allowed for that. Okay, so even if you're not in Maine, y'all, and you are in need of Kate's services, she might be able to fit you into her schedule of death. That's right. Death schedule. Death goddess schedule. Death goddess, Sherpa. Death goddess, Batman, Sherpa schedule. Make sure you check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash WWDN. If you want to help us keep the podcast going, we welcome one and all to the Patreon. And if you just want to send us to get some tacos, it's buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. And the most important question of the day is, Kate, first of all, do you eat cheese? If so, what is your favorite cheese? Ooh. Oh, I love cheese. Yes. I know. I love cheese. And so like every kind of cheese, but I'm like a feta or a crumbly, melty cheese. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Are you a blue cheese crumbly? I'm not a blue cheese so crumbly. not stinky crumbly cheese, just crumbly cheese. Just salty, salty crumbly cheese, like the feta. Yum. Do you like goat cheese crumbles? Yes. Yes. Okay. Bring those right on board. Have you had goat cheese? I'm not, but I had one that had apricot in it and it was decent. Ooh, yum. Yes. These are the important things. 
you need to ask all your death doula clients this. What kind of cheese do you want me to get you at three in the morning? I will go get it. Yes, absolutely. If you're interested in checking out the Widow Wives Club, come join us on Facebook. We have a group for those who have sustained partner loss. Just make sure you answer all the questions, including agreeing to the group rules at the bottom of the questions. And give us a rating and review because we want them. Anita really needs it for her self-esteem. Please, everybody, help me to help Anita. Mm -hmm. I'm super competitive, and it's all I want in my life. Until we talk to you again... I'm Anita. I'm Mel. I'm Kate. And we're two young widows and Sherpa death goddess Batman, death doula. Crumbly cheese. Crumbly cheese feta. And we're just trying to figure out... Widow, we do now. now. This is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what well, is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks. And so you don't have to pay extra for that. And you still get great service. Yep. Anita and I have traveled all over and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it. And my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not. Who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So if somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.